2: Dorothy Arzner wasn't the first woman to direct films in Hollywood. But she was one of the few who endured, an exception to the rule, a female director who managed to succeed for a time in a man's world. Between the silent era of the 20s and the early 40s, she made
3: 16 films in about as many years. I think that she represented a commitment to telling women's stories. That's Dorothy's biographer, the film critic
2: and professor Judith Main.
3: Whether they were love stories or work stories or complicated stories, especially complicated stories about the relationship between love and work. And I think the fact that Dorothy Arzner survived as long as she did is really testimony to what a great independent creative spirit she had.
2: I Heart Radio in Tribeca Studios. This is Fierce.
3: I can't type.
4: Yes, women workers do present problems, Joan.
2: A podcast about the incredible women who never made it in your history books, and the modern women carrying on their legacies today.
0: Here's to the ladies, the fair and the weak. I can't file. The women workers don't mind routine, repetitive
5: work. Will you make a copy of this?
3: Naturally!
2: Each week, we're bringing you the story of a groundbreaking woman from the past who made huge contributions to the present, but whose name still isn't on the tips of our tongues, for whatever reason. Maybe it's because men wrote most of history. At the end of each episode, I'll be joined by a woman living today who's standing on the shoulders of this historical figure, whether she knows it or not. Dorothy's stepmom sent her to the posh Westlake Girls Prep School in the hopes of educating the tomboy out of her. She had the habit of donning a newsboy cap and a three-piece suit. She called herself by the name of Garth. But there wasn't much that Westlake or her stepmother could do about this. Pants would always be Dorothy's signature style. Dorothy's parents operated a Los Angeles restaurant called the Hoffman Cafe. It's where all the silent film stars and filmmakers would congregate. That could have been enough to suck Dorothy into the high-flying world of Tinseltown glitz and glamour. But it didn't. The
6: proximity actually turned her off. I had been around the theater and actors all my life. That's
2: an actress reading Dorothy Arzner's words. The sources for her quotes are from her biography by Judith Main and an extensive interview conducted by Karen Kay and Gerald Peary in 1974.
6: My father, Louis Arzner, owned a famous Hollywood restaurant next to a theater. I saw most of the fine plays that came there with Maud Adams, Sarah Bernhardt, David Warfield. All of the early movie and stage actors came to my dad's restaurant for dinner. I had no personal interest in actors because they were too familiar to me. The experience of her father owning this restaurant
3: frequented by Hollywood types really kind of turned her away from motion pictures because she said that people were always throwing her in the air and, you know, paying unwanted attention to her. After graduating from Westlake,
2: Dorothy decided she wanted to be a doctor or a nurse, something outside the industry. She began studying
6: medicine at USC, but she quickly got bored of it. I wanted to be like Jesus, heal the sick and raise the dead instantly without surgery, pills, etc. All thoughts of university and degrees in medicine were abandoned. Even though I was an A student and had a fairly extensive education, I became a so-called dropout.
2: Growing up relatively well off with a father who was willing to give her financial support meant that Dorothy had the freedom a lot of women at the time didn't have. She could choose what she wanted to do. Play around with her options, try things out, and decide they were boring or fail at them entirely. So after the outbreak of World War I, Dorothy volunteered with the Domestic Ambulance Corps. In the Ambulance Corps, she met William DeMille, the guy running the volunteer operation. He also happened to be the brother of the famed studio executive Cecil B. DeMille. Even though Dorothy had been gun-shy about getting into the film business, there was no denying that motion pictures were the place for an eager young modern woman living in Los Angeles to be. It was exciting and it was a good job. Plus, the
6: time was right to be starting out in the industry. There had been a serious flu epidemic, so workers were needed. It was possible for even inexperienced people to have an opportunity if they showed signs of ability or knowledge. She was also lucky.
2: William DeMille took a liking to her when they worked together, and he agreed to take her on a tour of the studios to see what jobs might be available and what might be interesting to her. Dorothy
6: was nothing if not ambitious. She thought being the director was the best job. I remember making the observation, if one was going to be in this movie business, one should be a director, because he was the one who told everyone else what to do. In fact, he was the whole works. However, after I finished a week of observation, William DeMille's secretary told me that typing scripts would enlighten me to what the film-to-be was all about. It was the blueprint for the picture. All the departments, including the directors, were grounded in the script. So I turned up at the end of the week in William DeMille's office. He asked, Now where do you think you'd like to start? I answered, At the bottom. Where do you think the bottom is? I meekly answered, Typing scripts. For that, I'll give you a job. The rub was, Dorothy was just awful at it. I was a terrible typist. There was a big red-headed Irish girl who was a wonder at typing. She took pity on me and did more than half my work. But for her, I wouldn't have lasted a week. But the
2: typing let her get her hands dirty, let her see firsthand what went into writing a silent movie script, how all the
3: pieces fell together. And through that period of apprenticeship into the motion pictures, she really learned a lot from different people. She was encouraged
2: by a female cutter named Nan Heron to work on a silent film called Too Much Johnson. I
6: watched her work on one reel, and she let me do the second while she watched and guided every cut. Everything was done by hand. The film was read and cut over an eight inch by 10 inch box covered with frosted glass and a light bulb underneath. The film pieces were placed over a small sprocketed plate, snipped with glue, and pressed by hand. Dorothy loved this job, much more than the typing. And because she enjoyed it, she took a real initiative in getting the work done. On Sunday, I went into the studio and assembled the next reel. On Monday, I told her about it, and she looked at it and approved. I finished the picture under her guidance.
2: From there, Arsner took up a position as a cutter and eventually chief editor.
6: I cut something like 32 pictures in one year. I worked most of the day and night and loved it.
2: She got her first real shot behind the camera while editing a movie called Blood and Sand, a silent drama about a bullfighter
3: starring Rudolph Valentino. She became very well known on the basis of this particular picture for her editing because what she did was she very expertly combined archival footage of bullfights into the filmed action of the motion picture so that it looked almost seamless as you moved from the stock footage to Rudolph Valentino in the arena. By doing that, she ended up saving the studio a heap
2: of money. That's when Dorothy developed this reputation for efficiency and economy in a system that was hungry for cheap, quick movies. The director, James Cruz, who was this really big deal at the time, also took note of Dorothy's work on Blood and Sand.
5: My God, who cut that
3: picture? She worked on two James Cruz films, and he was a real kind of father figure to her and helped mentor her through
6: the stages of her apprenticeship. He always treated me as though I were his son, without any frills, but with a sort of comradely friendship.
2: Soon, Dorothy was in demand on these rough-and-tumble adventure and action flicks. Westerns, historical epics. Movies filled with gambling, drinking, and fighting. Arsner was very much a woman working in a man's world. But she was something else, too. She set herself apart with her beautifully tailored suits,
3: her slicked-back hair like the boys. People would say, oh, Dorothy Arsner dressed like a man, or she was so mannish. No, she dressed like a lesbian. And that's what was threatening to people.
2: Dorothy Arzner was out in every way but in word. She didn't talk openly about her sexuality. Most of Hollywood likely knew she was gay, but they never spoke of it. Dorothy also made no attempt to hide it. She lived with her partner, Marion
3: Morgan, for much of her life. And she wore pants. I think that people were confused what to do with this woman who dressed so obviously as a butch lesbian. I think that a lot of producers, especially later in her life, made life very difficult for her because they were known for their homophobia and they weren't going to put up with not only a woman director, but a woman director who was a lesbian on top of it. And when you read the popular press about Dorothy Harsner at the time, boy, did people bend over backwards to describe what she looked like. But then, at the same time, they would describe her as having a very assertive presence. And it was her professionalism on set that really got her through, because she did her job so well.
2: Dorothy was intent on learning everything about how a movie was made. That's when she began trying her hand at screenwriting, penning a few scripts for rival Studio Columbia. It wasn't long before she aspired to direct. She asked repeatedly at Paramount to be given the chance to direct. She was laughed off as many times. Columbia, a much smaller operation than Paramount, was willing to give her a shot. She was ready to leave Paramount behind, but not before making sure they knew exactly what they were losing. She went looking for B.P. Schulberg, head of production at Paramount, but Schulberg's secretary told her he was in a meeting.
6: So I went out to my car in the parking lot, had my hand on the door latch, when I decided after so many years, I was going to say goodbye to someone important and not just leave unnoticed and forgotten. The ego took over. She went back up, asked the secretary if she could wait.
2: Secretary said no. Just then Walter Wanger, another paramount exec, happened to walk by.
6: As he passed, I called out, oh, you'll do. She told
2: him she was leaving, going to another studio. He immediately called Schloberg into the meeting. The two men tried to convince her to stay, but Arsner was adamant that wasn't going to happen
6: unless she got to direct. I would rather do an A picture at Columbia, which was then a second tier studio, than a B picture at Paramount. I backed them into a corner. I wasn't about to do it their way. I had years of experience and results behind me. I didn't want to have to start all over again at the bottom where they might've kept me out of bigotry. The threat worked. And she was given the opportunity to direct.
3: Time for a quick break. Be right back.
1: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from at&t fiber get what you want without the complicated at&t fiber live like a guggillionaire available wherever you will get your podcast limited availability in select areas visit at and for details
4: are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh then it's time for an upgrade The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store.
0: Snag a Job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs
2: The studio was finally willing to take a chance on Dorothy as a director. They handed her a play, The Best Dressed Woman in Paris. But they weren't going to make it easy. They told her to write the script and be on set in two weeks. Arisner's directorial debut, Fashions for Women, the adaptation of The Best Dressed Woman in Paris, was released in 1927. Dorothy made it swiftly and under budget and that
3: was the beginning of her career.
2: It was filled with romantic turmoil and eventually love with a handsome male protagonist. Boiled down to its basics, it could be considered a precursor to the modern romantic comedy. Commercially, it was a box office success, even though reviews were mixed. Still, almost all of them praised Arzner's debut directorial skills, making sure to note she was an anomaly, a woman director.
5: Woman director delivers delightful photo play. Considering the ungrateful story she had to contend with, director Dorothy Arzner, Paramount's first woman director, did fairly well.
2: The success of Fashions for Women landed Arzner a long-term contract directing for Paramount. The studio ended up having so much faith in Dorothy Arzner that they entrusted her with their first talkie, a film starring Clara Bow, who at the time was one of Paramount's biggest stars. It was yet another fluffy, comedic romp called The Wild Party. party
3: Claire Bow was very nervous about the transition to sound. So Dorothy invented what came to be called the fishpole mic. She had a mic mounted literally on a fishing pole so that out of frame, Dorothy and her assistants could move the microphone across the stage with Clara Beau's movements so that she wouldn't be so self-conscious about speaking correctly into the microphone.
2: This may have been the first instance of a boom mic used on set.
3: And that was a huge success, as the Wild Party was very, very successful. And that was really a great beginning for both Clara Bow and Arsner in the talking picture phase. Arsner was hailed in the
2: press for successfully transitioning Bow to the talkies.
5: This woman, Dorothy Arsner, has discovered a new star in Hollywood. She has disclosed that Clara Bow, a fiery red-haired star of the silver sheet, is an even greater stellar light in talking pictures than she was on the silent screen.
2: Arzner became something of a star maker, building careers or elevating them to a new level like she did for Clara Bow. It's important to remember that at this time, the studio was king. Dorothy didn't get to pick and choose most of her pictures. Because she was a woman director, Dorothy Arzner was often assigned the so-called women's films. Fluffy, cliched romances and melodramas. But Arzner did everything she could to push those boundaries. To try to showcase more complicated women, complicated relationships. Real life. Sure, she adhered to the time-worn tropes of love and courtship, but she also focused on the things that torment women within society. About how difficult it actually is for women to fulfill the roles that have always been assumed for them.
3: She saw female characters as characters inspired by desire, and not just desire for a man or for romance, but a desire to be something, a desire to have a place in the world. She told women's stories in all their complexity.
2: One of the films that did that incredibly well was Sarah and Son. It was a story of Sarah, a German immigrant maid who gives up her son for adoption to a wealthy family. Years later, Sarah becomes a successful singer and tries desperately to reclaim her child. The film was a critical hit. It made all the lists of top 10 movies of the year. In some ways, it even became the defining woman's movie of the time. One reviewer
5: noted, It is very much a woman's picture adapted by a woman, directed by a woman, and enacted by a woman. Here is a motion picture that will grip every woman in the audience and hold her in thrall through its length.
2: Another review called it a triumph for the women. Variety dubbed it an all-femme film.
6: Classification of being a woman director got to Arsner. I was so averse to having any comment made about being a woman director that in my first contract, I asked that I didn't even have screen credit on the picture because I wanted to stand up as a director and not have people make allowances that it was a woman. Her Paramount contract was renewed in 1931. But when
2: the studio underwent a reorganization in 1932, they instituted a mandatory pay cut. Dorothy refused it and struck out on her own as an independent director. Her first megaphone-for-hire project was on the RKO flick Christopher Strong, starring Katherine Hepburn.
6: I chose to have Katherine Hepburn from seeing her about the studio. She had given a good performance in Bill of Divorcement, but now she was about to be relegated to a Tarzan-type picture. I walked over to the set. She was up a tree with a leopard skin on. She had a marvelous figure. And talking to her, I felt she was the very modern type I wanted for Christopher Strong. It would be Hepburn's
2: first film with star billing, and a lot was riding on the picture. The celebrity biographer Charles Higgum described it like this.
5: For Arsner, making the picture was a challenge. As a woman in a man's business, she dared not have any failures. She would have been let out of the club.
2: There are plenty of mixed opinions about how Arsner and Hepburn, two of Hollywood's strongest personalities, got along on set. In her own autobiography, Hepburn wrote, She wore pants, and so did I.
3: Here's Judith Main describing the film. It's a real demonstration on the part of Dorothy Arzner of how taking prescribed roles too seriously can lead to one's demise. There's a great scene in the film that's become very famous. When she and Christopher make love for the first time, there's a shot of the end table of their bed. And he has given her a bracelet, and she extends it into the frame. So that's all you see. And she says, now I'm shackled.
7: I love my beautiful bracelet. i will never get a button for George before. Now I'm shackled.
3: But she really manages to bring a critical element to these films about romance. She brings a critical eye to what's expected of women in
2: Hollywood. In 1936, Arzner directed the movie that would make Rosalind Russell a star. It's called Craig's Wife. Russell plays a wife so obsessed with keeping the interior of her house picture perfect that she drives her husband completely insane.
6: What's practical
3: about leaving your wife in
6: your home? I
5: haven't a wife to leave. For you, neither
0: loved me nor honored me. But you married me all the same. And you married a house.
2: A news story on Craig's wife described it like this.
5: There is a film which will be shown all over the country next week that raises a very interesting point for filmgoers. It is a film which has been made for women, and it has been written and directed by women. Although there are one or two men in the cast, they are only there because they help the women to express their points of view.
6: Craig's wife was not a high-budget picture to make. I told Harry Cohen I would give him an A picture for B picture money. He fell for that. It was not one of the biggest successes when it was released, but it got such fine press that over the long run, it was released several times and stood high on Columbia's box office list. George Kelly, the original playwright of Craig's Wife, was allegedly
2: displeased with Dorothy's subtle feminist take on his play.
6: I did try to be as faithful to his play as possible, Except that I made it from a different point of view.
2: Arsner decided that rather than the shrew Kelly had written, the character of Craig's wife should simply be portrayed as a stronger woman than her husband.
6: When I told Kelly this, he rose to a six-foot height and said, That is not my play. Of course, she didn't
2: only butt heads with the men.
6: On some occasions, I have detected a certain antagonism in the women I was directing, but I believe this was due to the fact that a woman director was a novelty.
2: Hollywood was starting to shy away from pictures about complicated women. Even though Dorothy went on from there to direct good films with the likes of Joan Crawford and Lucille Ball, her career was beginning to slow down. Soon, she found herself clashing with the all-powerful MGM studio head Louis B. Mayer. Dorothy eventually began to feel, and probably rightfully so, that Mayer was
6: blackballing her. He sent me two or three scripts. One had Rosalind Russell playing three parts. It was silly. I refused the next two or three scripts, and I was suspended. Mayer put out the word that I was difficult. Dorothy went back to
2: Columbia to direct one last film, First Comes Courage, a movie about the adventures of a female spy. But then she got terribly ill with pneumonia during the filming, and the project was completed by another director. Yes, Dorothy was physically sick, but she was also psychologically beaten down by an industry that she felt didn't support her in telling stories the way she wanted to tell them.
3: She said that she really felt like Hollywood left her as much as she left Hollywood. And the reason for that is because big male producers for her, were making it extremely difficult to continue working in Hollywood on her own terms. So she left. And so Dorothy Arsner never directed In Hollywood again.
2: She settled into a low-key lifestyle with her longtime partner, Marion Morgan,
6: traveling and eventually buying a house in the desert. She said, I took time out to look at the world and beyond it, away from Hollywood.
2: Maine has said it's important not to frame Arsner as a victim. She continued to work, just on her terms. She made training films for the Women's Army Corps during World War II and trained women editors to cut them. She dabbled in radio. She directed some commercials and taught a film class at UCLA. There, her most famous student was a young man named Francis Ford Coppola. He later praised Dorothy Arsner as giving him the confidence he needed to become a director. Dorothy Arzner knew better than anyone how precarious a life in Hollywood could be. She came to terms with that,
6: and she found a life beyond it, telling her students, The most secure thing you can have is to embrace the insecurity of life. Time for a break.
2: When we get back, we'll be joined by director and editor Sonajui Singer. Whose first feature film, Stray Dolls, premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2019.
1: Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time, time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a guggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details.
4: Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. Also available in Grapefruit and Lavender Scents at a nearby retail store.
0: Snag a Job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker. So, visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
2: Dorothy Arsner remains the most prolific woman director to work within the Hollywood studio system. She directed stars like Katherine Hepburn, Joan Crawford, Lucille Ball and Rosalind Russell. But more importantly, she changed the way women were depicted in film. She made them real and complicated and flawed. She gave them agency on and off the screen. And yet, even many women filmmakers today, the ones who are still trying to break through the incredibly male-dominated Hollywood industrial complex, have never heard Dorothy Arsner's story. And even though Arsner broke through a glass ceiling nearly a hundred years ago, not enough has changed. Women go to the movies. They account for 51% of moviegoers. And yet for the top 100 grossing films of 2019, women represented only 12% of directors, 20% of writers, and 23% of editors. It's a significant increase from 2018, but there's still a long way to go. Catherine Bigelow is still the only woman to ever win the Academy Award for Best Director, and only five women have ever been nominated. Things are starting to change. Slowly. Today, we're joined by director and editor Jui SINGH. Like Dorothy, Sana Jui began her career as an editor, a cutter. And as an editor, she worked beside acclaimed film directors like Harmony Corinne, Julie Taymor, and Spike Jones. Sana Jui took pains to master the technical aspects of making a film before she began her own work as a director. As a woman of color in the film industry, Sana Jui now, much like Dorothy then, has always felt like she needed to work harder, faster, and smarter than the men around her. Going into our interview, she didn't know much about Dorothy Arzner's legacy. And then we told her the story.
8: I knew that women worked in film, women were directing films, but I didn't know Dorothy's story until I read all about her. It made me think that while she had so many breakthroughs and, you know, broke through the glass ceiling almost a century ago, it's almost like the glass ceiling formed again. Women have to keep shattering it every time and every few years.
2: What are some of the challenges Dorothy was facing that you're still facing today?
8: I saw so many parallels in Dorothy's story to mine. She had the standoff moment with Paramount where she told him that she was leaving and that she would rather direct an A picture at Columbia than direct a B picture at Paramount. I could sort of relate to this time in making my feature Stray Dolls. We had gone down the road with a certain group of producers who were very excited about producing my feature, but they kept saying, we'll do it this fall, we'll do it next spring, we'll do it next year spring. And so this sort of dragged out for almost two years, and I began to realize that there was always going to be a male director or a more established director who was going to cut in in front of me and they were going to produce his film before mine. It was three men who took my spot before me. So there was this moment that I realized that if I don't take the initiative to figure out the production side and get my film made, that it possibly will not get made. No one's going to hand you that really coveted opportunity that you want.
2: When Dorothy directed, she had to prove over and over again that she was competent. Mm-hmm. She was always under budget. She delivered things quick and she delivered them cheap.
8: hmm Straight Alls, my first feature, was made for perhaps one third of the budget that it should have been, and we wrapped under budget. I felt like the stakes were pretty high, and I didn't have the leeway to reshoot a scene again or fuck up in a way where we had to go back and use resources. The film had stunts, it had nudity, it was a challenging film to do for the budget that we did, but. I almost felt like if I proved myself and showed the world that I could do that film for one third of the budget, then that would give me the freedom to do more work and do it at a bigger budget. So there was just a lot at stake. And I felt like I was representing all women of color directors.
2: You felt like you were representing every woman of color?
8: Exactly, because there's so few of us. It's literally, you can count them on your fingers. But not because women don't want to direct and women of color don't want to direct, but because these opportunities are so far and few and very few people hold the keys to opening those doors. And so a lot of women are shut out.
2: Whenever the studio spoke to the press about Dorothy, they used this condescending language. She does women's films, and only a woman like Dorothy could add a woman's touch to this woman's film. Are those kinds of modifiers still happening now with your movies?
8: Yes. Oh, my God. This section really spoke to me because IndieWire did this list of 25 female emerging directors. And there were some incredible directors on that list. Some of them had won awards at Sundance. I was on that list as well. But I just found that really ironic because... If a male director wins the top award at Sundance, he doesn't get put on this list that calls him an emerging male director. <laughs> He's just, a, you know, the top 25 directors to watch. I mean, I think they've just stopped calling Eva DuVernay emerging <laughs> like as of a few years ago. So I think there is this female ghetto that women get put in. So where do we go from here to make sure that in the next hundred
2: years, women directors are just directors? You're not emerging. You're not women directors. You're not placed in the pink ghetto. How can we make sure that all of your names aren't lost to history the same way we lost Dorothy's?
8: I think the problem is so systematic and so complex that it has to be addressed from so many different perspectives. Of course, writer directors like me and women of color need to just jump into the ring and demand what they deserve. But I think it also there's some responsibility that lies with people who are in power now, because it seems that every time a woman breaks ground, the crack closes up again. Unless the full spectrum of our population now is reflected on screen the way that we see it within our friends and our colleagues, we don't get to say that we exist? Like, for example, I don't see people like myself in lead roles in a large, commercial, entertaining Hollywood film, so then does that mean that I don't even exist? So I think representation is really important and for us all to feel like we're part of the narrative, that we're part of society now that is gonna shape the next 10 years and the next 30 years or 50 years to come. And it's necessary, especially now.
7: We're very grateful to our guests, biographer Judith Maine and director Sanjui Sina, whose film Stray Dolls was released on April 10th. It's available now on streaming services, and we encourage you to watch it. Dorothy Arzner is voiced by Blanca Camacho. The male voices in this episode were all done by Jacob von Eichel. Fierce is hosted and written by Joe Piazza, produced and directed by me, Anna Stumpf. Our executive producers are Joe Piazza, Nikki Etor, Anna Stumpf, and from Tribeca Studios, Leah Sarbib. This episode was edited and soundscaped by Anna Stumpf, Tristan McNeil, and Aaron Kaufman. Our associate producer is Emily Marinoff. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Research by Lizzie Jacobs. The Fierce theme is by Hamilton Lighthouser and Anna Stumpf. Our very sincere thanks to Mangesha Tickador for making this series possible. And to Nikki Itor, our co-executive producer, thank you so very much for everything you did for this show. Sources for this episode. Directed by Dorothy Arzner by Judith Main. An extensive interview with Dorothy Arzner conducted by Karen Kay and Gerald Peary in 1974, published first by Cinema and then by the British Film Institute in 1975. What Women Want, The Complex World of Dorothy Arzner and Her Cinematic Women by Donna R. Casella, found in Framework, the Journal of Cinema and Media, Volume 50 from 2009. Thank you so much for listening. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.